Thanks, Stephen. What a fun day. I love these dedications. It's just very special in the life of the church to just watch these families grow. And so we're, we're awesome, honored to be able to do that. Well, today we are going to be in the book of Philippians. So we have been studying the book of Philippians over the last few weeks. And today, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Philippians chapter 3. That's where we're going to be studying today. Um, the book of Philippians is actually a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul to his friends, the church in the city of what is now Greece, or the church uh, in Philippi. Now, if you remember a few weeks ago, I gave you the background of this book and the relationship of Paul to these people at the church in Philippi. Paul had gone to this area of the world where no one had ever heard the gospel. So before Paul shows up there, nobody had heard about Jesus. Nobody knew anything about faith and God and, and Jesus Christ. They had never heard the gospel before. And so Paul travels to this area of the world. And the very first convert in that area is a woman named Lydia. And slowly, after Lydia became a Christian, more people became Christians. And very slowly, the church began to form one by one. And so the small little church began to gather together. But they faced a lot of opposition. Paul was arrested. They faced persecution and opposition to the gospel. So eventually, Paul has to leave. So he leaves this area, and he's gone for about six years. And during this time, the church begins to grow, and it keeps growing, and people are hearing the gospel and coming to faith. And so about six years later, Paul returns to Philippi. And imagine what it felt like for him to come back to this place that he left with just a small handful of believers and to return six years later and see this full-grown church that the gospel has continued to spread and now there is an established church there. And so now about six to ten years after Paul revisited Philippi, Paul is now in Rome. He's been arrested for preaching the gospel and he's in He's in prison. So over here in Philippi, his friends hear about this. They hear that Paul has been arrested, that he's in prison. And even though they're very poor and they're facing persecution, they really want to do something for their friends. So they gather together whatever they can, and they put together a gift. And a man named Epaphroditus takes this gift, and he goes to Rome and delivers it to Paul. So Paul is so blessed by this gift because his friends, not only are they they're very close. They've spent a lot of time together. They have a lot of history together. But the fact that in their position where they're already suffering, they took the time to gather a gift and to send somebody to deliver it, it just blesses Paul. And so Paul takes out his pen and he starts to write a letter back. And the letter that he writes is the book of Philippians. So when you're reading the book of Philippians, I want you to have all of that going in in your mind, his relationship to them how much he means to them, what has just transpired, where Paul is. All of these things, when we think of all of the context, it makes this so rich and so full when we read that. So although today we're looking at chapter 3, this week I want you to read in your Bibles, read Philippians this week, and I would encourage you to spend a little time at the end of chapter 2. In verses 19 through 24, Paul's talking about his plans to send Timothy back to the church to once again help them in their growth. And in verses 25 to 30, you're going to see the name of our friend Epaphroditus again. Now you know who he is. He's the one that brought the gift, right? And it turns out that when he was traveling to bring that gift, he faced some obstacles. I'm not going to tell you what it is. You've got to go read it this week. 
That's what we call clickbait. You're going to go now and you're going to go read it this week. So, but it's very, very interesting. But today we're looking at an incredible passage of scripture in Philippians chapter 3 where Paul gives us a really personal look at his ministry philosophy. We're going to see his frustration with some people who have infiltrated the Philippian church. And he will greatly oppose their teaching and philosophy. But mostly, we're going to see this beautiful expression of Paul's reliance upon God to do the work of the gospel, which I think will inspire us to have a greater dependence on God as we do the work of the gospel today. So let's pray. God, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you that it is living and active. I thank you that it can speak truth to every place of our life. But God, you, you use your word to illuminate things inside of us that you want to weed out, that you want to untie, that you want to give us a greater, uh, clearer image of who you are. And so I pray today that you would illuminate the scriptures, illuminate your word as we look, at, look into it. Maybe we become more like you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, Philippians 3, verse 1. Whatever happens, my dear brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. I never get tired of telling you these things, and I do it to safeguard your faith. Now, we could stop right there. We could just stop right there today and have an entire message just on that. Whatever happens, whatever happens, rejoice in the Lord. Paul is encouraging his friends. Now remember what they're going through. They're living in difficult times. They're facing opposition, persecution, poverty, all kinds of very difficult things. And so he makes sure over and over and over again, he tells them, whatever is going on, make sure that you rejoice in the Lord. He says that this will protect your faith. He actually uses the word safeguard your faith. That taking the time to rejoice in the Lord, to remember who he is, to re thanking him for the past work in your life and declaring the truth that he will continue his work in you is important to our faith. Whatever obstacle you're facing, it loses power when you put it up against the power and authority of God. Amen? When we magnify who God is, when we remember what he's done, it helps us to overcome the hardships that we're facing. So rejoicing in the Lord is a powerful weapon for us to use in seasons of hardship. Let's look at verse 2. He says, watch out for those dogs, those people who do evil, those mutilators who say you must be circumcised to be saved. For we who worship by the Spirit of God are the ones who are truly circumcised. We rely on what Christ Jesus has done for us. So Paul is giving a warning here, and he is not mincing words. He is not being shy about how he really feels about some people who were trying to influence the Philippian church. Now remember, this church is located in Macedonia. So the majority of the people within this church are not Jewish people. The majority of the people in this church are Gentile people. And there was a particular group of teachers called Judaizers who were Jews who had converted to Christianity. But they were teaching that in order to truly be a Christian, you had to follow all of the Old Testament rules and customs, especially the custom of circumcision. This group of people 
taught a combination of God's grace and human effort to be saved. They were saying, yes, you're saved by grace of Jesus Christ, but you also have to behave a certain way in order to be a Christian. So let me ask you a question. Do you think this kind of thing would influence the church today? Oh, you're all real quiet. Yeah, right? There still are Judaizers today. There are actual Judaizers just like what Paul was talking about who literally believe you have to follow all the Old Testament dietary laws and everything. We don't deal a lot with that here in Farmington, Minnesota, I don't think. But we do experience in, this, in the church today, don't we? There are, in fact, denominations who believe that you must have a faith in Jesus Christ but also participate in certain sacraments or behaviors in order for you to be saved. And I know that many of you grew up in a lot of various religious traditions, so I want to be really clear to you today. We believe that salvation in Jesus Christ comes by faith alone. You receive that gift. It's freely given to us, and you don't have to do anything else to be saved. You cannot earn it. You cannot lose it unless you willingly walk away from God and reject God. But you cannot lose it by not doing enough to keep it. And I just want to highlight one other area where I think this Judaizer mentality can infiltrate the church. I read a book years ago, and uh, John Ortberg was the author, and he coined this term, and I never forgot it. He called it boundary marker Christianity. Sometimes in the church, we like to sort ourselves into who's really in and who's really out. Who's really saved and who's just kind of saved, right? We like to know who's in and who's out. So we put up certain boundary markers so that we know who's who. Now, in the past, boundary markers might have included church attendance, well, they don't even come to church. Are they really saved, right? It might have been church attendance. It might have been who drank alcohol and who didn't. It could have been who smoked and who didn't. Who played cards or who gambled and who didn't. Or even, gasp, those who danced or had tattoos or went to the movies, right? And who didn't. Now, don't get me wrong. Let me be clear here. Every single one of us who has a relationship with Jesus Christ should have a list of not for me's. Okay? Things that Jesus has put his finger on and said, in order for you to walk close with me, you have got to give this thing up. There should be things in your life that you lay down and say, this thing pulls me away from a closer walk with Jesus, so I willingly give it up so that I can be closer to him. And that might be alcohol, and it might be gambling, and it might be going to a club, and it might be watching certain movies. That is appropriate. But when we start to define who's in and who's out by who does what, we are setting up boundary marker Christianity. And it is the same spirit of the Judaizers that Paul was talking about that tells us we're not saved by grace alone, but it's the things we do or don't do that make us right with God. And that is dangerous. How many of you know the church 
is just a church full of sinners saved by the grace of God. I think we need a loud amen for that one, right? We are all sinners saved by the grace of God. And if we start sorting people out by behaviors, it's not long before a religious, judgmental spirit takes over. And pretty soon, no one who isn't perfect wants to be around that. And you know what it creates? It just creates a culture where we hide, right? Because none of us are perfect. None of us are going to measure up. We're all going to have times where we mess up and we, we fall apart and we make mistakes. And if we have created a culture where we're sorting who's in and who's out, all we're going to do is just put on a really good face and make sure nobody ever knows. And then we're not there to support one another and encourage one another and come alongside and say, hey, it's okay. I know you're having a rough time. I've gone through something too. Let's do this together, right? We can't create a culture of hiding because we are pointing to who's in and who's out. Instead, we need to create a culture where we all know, hey, we all love Jesus. We all have areas of our life where we're learning and growing and God is shaping us but that we are all at equal ground at the foot of the cross. The person who is brand new to faith and is just learning about Jesus and their life is still a total disaster is on equal footing as the person who has been saved their whole life and has walked with God faithfully for years. We're all exactly the same. Sinners saved by grace. Paul has very harsh words for the Judaizers who are trying to get this church to create a culture of faith plus works. He calls them dogs. Now, let me be clear. Dogs back then were very different than dogs now. Some of you are like, I love dogs. That's so, what's, why is he calling them that? Yesterday I was trying to kind of just chill out a little bit. And so I, I pulled up, I think it was Prime, and I found a two-hour documentary on biblical excavation in Turkey. So that was what I was doing for fun yesterday. I know, party. Um, <laughs> but I was watching it, and I was amazed how much they kept, as they were ex excavating these sites and places that Paul would have walked, they kept encountering dogs. And they kept talking about the dogs in this area, because they're not dogs like you and I know. These were vicious, rabid, wild protectors. And the shepherds would have the dogs around uh, their sheep in order to protect uh, the places that they were going from animals. They, um, houses in different places would have these dogs, and they were just rabid. And they were just, as soon as anyone would come near, you just hear this most vicious growling. And they would come, and they were keeping everybody out. And I thought, that's amazing. When we're thinking about Paul is calling them dogs, this idea that they were just there ready to just pounce on anybody to keep them out. You don't belong here, Right? That's what Paul is saying these people were. He calls them dogs. He calls them evil. He calls them mutilators. He knows that nothing can shift the freedom and beauty of the gospel quicker than a religious spirit. So he is adamant to oppose it. Then he goes on and he expounds more on the idea of grace alone. Look at the second part of verse 3. He says, we put no confidence in human effort. Though I could have confidence in my own effort, if anyone could. Indeed, if others have reason for confidence in their own efforts, I have even more. I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I am a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew if there ever was one. 
I was a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. Paul begins to describe how he used to rely on boundary marker Christianity in his own life. He's saying, hey, if we're going that route, if we're sorting people out by who's in and who's out, let me just tell you how, do, how good I'm doing on that quiz, right? He is saying, if we're going that right, uh, route, I have more reason than anyone to be in the in category. And then he gives us this list of what would have been the boundary markers of the day. And here are the categories that he uses to take pride in. First was his heritage. He took pride in where he came from. The second was his religion. He took pride in what he believed. The third was his work. He had confidence in what he did. And the last was his morality. He had confidence in what he didn't do. Let's talk about those for a second. First, his heritage. Pure-blooded citizen of Israel, Paul said. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew of Hebrews. How interesting that we could begin to take pride in where we come from, as if we have anything to do with where we come from. But Paul had latched onto his heritage, and he had begun to build his confidence on the fact that he had the right spiritual pedigree in order to be viewed as more spiritual. The second thing he put confidence in was his religion. Paul knew the scriptures. He studied harder than anyone else. Actually, Paul was groomed to be a leader in the Jewish church. This documentary I was watching yesterday actually talked a lot about this. It talked about the fact that all of the people would have been illiterate. They weren't able to read. Not only that, they didn't have Bibles printed like you and I have. So they had to rely on those who were trained in the Jewish faith, the Pharisees, to teach them. They were the only ones who read the scriptures, who knew the scriptures. They were the one who interpreted it to the everyday people. So that's a lot of power in the hands of someone like Paul. Paul had been raised to read, to write, to have access to the scripture. And so he was a little bit above everybody else because he had that knowledge firsthand and he had begun to put confidence in it. He studied harder than anyone else. He preached harder than anyone else against the Christians before his conversion because he was so convinced of his orthodoxy and theology that only the Jews could have a relationship with God. And therefore he persecuted the Christians. His religion turned him into a zealot, one who felt completely justified in harming those who didn't share his beliefs because he was protecting his religion. Does that sound like anything we could have heard today? We can become so caught up in our rightness that we can begin to lose our humanity. Paul had convinced himself that his religiousness gave him the right to kill people. Now, hopefully we aren't even close to that level, but listen, we have to keep an eye on our own religious spirit and make sure that in our rightness, we're not giving ourselves an excuse to treat people poorly. Paul describes his confidence in his heritage, his religion, and then he talks about his work. Paul was a very busy little bee. No one worked harder for his faith than Paul did. 
He was driven by activity, by working hard for God. And his confidence was deeply tied to how much he was doing for God. And man, does this one get me. (laughs) I've spent so many years of my life somehow relying on my activity to feel like I've earned the favor of God. Even if things start out with pure motives, it doesn't take long before my passion to serve God can turn out of an out-of-balance confidence in the things that I'm doing. So Paul talked about what he was doing, and lastly, Paul talked about his morality. He shared about his work, what he did, but now he boasts in what he didn't do. He had taken great pride in his ability to strictly follow the law. He obeyed every custom and every regulation of the Old Testament to a T. And he was just like the story that Jesus had told in Luke chapter 18. It says this, Jesus told the story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everyone else. Two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other was a despised tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer. I thank you, God, that I'm not like other people. The cheaters, the sinners, the adulterers, and I'm certainly not like that tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give you a tenth of my income. But the tax collector, he stood at a distance and dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow, saying, Oh God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. I tell you this, this sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Paul was confident in his morality. He was able to build himself up in the knowledge that he was better at following the rules than anybody else. And that's really the biggest lie when it comes to a judgmental spirit, isn't it, in any one of us? We're really convinced that you're never going to need that kind of grace. We can convince ourselves, I would never do that. I would never fall for that. I would never struggle with that. And we somehow don't think that we will need that same grace. It's the ultimate in pride. And Paul had deeply settled into this place of confidence in where he came from, in what he believed, in what he did and didn't do. He was an expert in boundary marker Christianity, both in judging others and in judging himself. But we see that when he found Christ, When he began to understand the truth of the gospel, all of this began to fall away, and he found freedom and salvation in Christ alone. Look at verse 7. He says, I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus as my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage, so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith, 
I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that one way or another, I will experience the resurrection from the dead. Paul adamantly opposed those who were trying to preach a combination of faith and works because he knows how incredibly toxic it will become. Thinking that we have to do enough to earn the favor of God will put us on a path of doubt, exhaustion, resentment, frustration, harshness, lack of compassion, and eventually it causes a lot of people to just walk away because they feel like they can just never do enough to earn God's love, so they just give up. I was reading in a book this week, and the author was talking to a tired, exhausted mother who is just was so uh, just resentful about trying to earn the approval of God. She said, I just can't keep living this way. Whatever God expects of me, I just don't have it to give. Isn't that heartbreaking? Can you hear the pain in her voice? Desperately needing God. But having been taught, whether outright or through the unseen boundary markers of the Christians in her life, she was convinced that unless she was working or doing or being a certain thing, that she could not have a relationship with God. And she didn't have it to offer, and so she just walked away. This breaks my heart. Church, we have got to get this right. We have to change the narrative from people feeling like Christians are just there ready to judge them like those dogs, ready to keep people out, ready to alienate them, ready to sort them into categories of in and out based on what they're doing, and instead change the culture to demonstrate over and over again that we are all saved by the grace of God. In these verses, Paul declares that everything he used to have put confidence in is gone. He says, I don't put any confidence now in my human effort. Instead, he's learned this beautiful secret of simply living loved by God, relying on his work on the cross, his grace, his mercy, and the incredible simplicity of the gospel. This has been a lesson in my own life that I've had to come back to in lots of different ways and in lots of different seasons, but probably about 15 years ago, it really kind of became a crisis moment for me in my faith. I was working really hard for God. And I just kept feeling like I had to do more and be more and serve more and pray more. And I was literally crushing under the weight of all of these expectations. And I just remember hitting a wall of exhaustion and burnout um, overwhelmed by the expectations that I had built up inside of me, that all of these things were required of me in order for God to be pleased with me. I had been going to counseling. I was trying to work through this, this deep-seated drive in me to earn God's love by working for him. I spent a lot of time praying about this, and I discovered a book called He Loves Me by author William Jacobson. It's one of the most life-changing books I've ever read. I've probably bought 50 copies because I keep giving them away. You can have mine if you need it. Um, in this book, he describes how most of us approach our Christian life like a little girl plucking the petals off of a daisy. Did you ever play that game when you were little where you have a flower and you say, he loves me, he loves me not? All the men in the room are like, what are you talking about? What is this thing? Well, we used to do this, 
where you have a flower and you say, he loves me, he loves me not, and you go around the flower and you pluck it off. And if you get to the end and your last petal is he loves me, then he loves you. And if it's not, it's not. No wonder we all have baggage. I don't know. That's a weird, weird game to play. <laughs> but anyway, he describes how most of us approach our Christian life like this little girl plucking off the petals of a daisy. Things are going well. God loves me. Things are hard. He loves me not. Something good has happened. He loves me. Something bad happened. He loves me not. I did a really good thing and served. He loves me. I really messed up. He loves me not. And our faith goes through this constant cycle. In the book, the author describes this idea as the tyranny of the favor line. Let me tell you what that means. A favor line is an invisible line that you can have with anyone in your life. Your boss, your parents, your spouse, anybody. The favor line is this. It is an invisible line that tells us whether or not we've met enough of someone's expectations of us to merit their approval. Right? Have I done enough for them to be happy with me? Or am I underneath that line? We can have these with bosses, friends, everybody, but we also can have this with God in our own minds. Here's a quote from the book. Bible reading, prayer, church involvement, and helping others, they seem to push us above the line. Selfish motives or sinful actions push us beneath it. That's why I call it the tyranny of the favor line. Trying to live under these expectations would disqualify any of us from God's presence or his favor. If you've tried it, you know how hard it is to do everything you think he requires. The only way to feel good about it is when you think at least you're doing more than the other believers around you. But you know intrinsically that you'll never be good enough. I remember reading this book and suddenly feeling this weight come off my shoulders. I'm like, God, that I had been caring for a long time because in my head I knew I was saved by grace, but somewhere in my heart I still felt like I needed to earn God's love by working hard for him and doing all the right things and not messing up and not making a mistake. And instead I had to realize there is no favor line with God. The grace of Jesus means that you are absolutely loved and accepted without doing anything. God's favor in your life has nothing to do with your heritage. Your past does not dictate how much God loves you, whether good or bad. Your ancestry has nothing to do with the favor of God in your life. And some of you have disqualified yourself because you don't come from a long line of Christians. And somewhere inside, you always feel like you're trying to measure up and earn a seat at the Christian table because you're just trying to overcome your past. Maybe you've put confidence in your religion and you need to know today that God doesn't love you more on the days you read your Bible and less on the days you don't. God doesn't love you more when you serve at church and love you less when you go to the cabin. I expected some amens there, actually. Or fishing? Yeah. Your salvation is not dependent on what you do. You are saved by grace alone, not a combination of grace and works. Some of you have to rethink your idea of religion because you grew up being taught a theology of grace and works. 
whatever your past and your background is, sometimes those things get tangled in. You know you're saved by grace, but you still have in the back of your mind, okay, but I have to, I have to, I have to. And God is wanting to untangle that knot so that you can just freely receive the gift of salvation. You're not saved based on your work. God doesn't love you more based on your activity for him. He isn't using you to get more work out of you. He loves you not based on anything you do for him, but just because you belong to him. Can you imagine in my house if I was looking at my kids and I'm like, I only love you because you do the laundry. I only had you kids so that someone could vacuum the carpets, right? Like what in the world? We would never think of that. We don't love our children based on what they do for us. We love them because they're ours. And this is the heart of God to us. We are his kids. It's okay. Don't worry about it. God doesn't love you more based on what you do. And lastly, God doesn't love you based on your morality. God isn't keeping track of your good deeds and your bad deeds. And every day, he's just weighing them against one another. Trying to decide if you've done enough today to earn his approval for that day. God loves you the same on your very best day as he does on your very worst day. And when you truly understand that, something unlocks in you, a devotion unlocks in you, that a love like that motivates you to want to do better, to want to get rid of the things in your life that keep you far away from God. Not because you're trying to earn it, but as a response for that kind of love that was freely given. Paul says, I put no confidence in the flesh. He says, I used to do that, but now I count it all as garbage. None of that matters. You know what he says I want now? I just want to know God more. I want to know Christ. I want to understand him better. I want to walk with him closer. I want to share with him in everything. The things that I used to count on to build my faith, I now consider it all lost. And I fix my eyes on just knowing this Jesus more. What a beautiful gift we've been given. Living a life of faith and peace, knowing that our hearts are secure, that we don't have to earn it. That kind of love can't help but elicit a response from us, right? Let's bow our heads as we close in prayer today. Jesus, we can't even begin to understand that kind of love. Even the most faithful human love is still human love, and it still fails us, and it still has conditions, and we find ourselves on that favor line. So, Lord, we just need supernatural help to understand this concept. That the love of God, there's no height nor depth. We can't understand the width or the height of it. It's so much bigger than anything we could ever understand. And Lord, I may not be able to understand it today, but I am desperate to just fold myself into it. God, to fully embrace the love that you are just standing there waiting to pour out on us. Lord, we recognize that 
Sometimes these things get so clouded over time and things we've been taught or ways we've been treated or things that we've learned, God. It can, it can all get in the mix and start to kind of tie up in knots and our theology gets mixed up and we find ourselves feeling like we have to work hard for you or, or we can't come near you because we've messed up or, or we don't belong because we don't have the right pedigree. But God, I pray today that we would count all of those things as garbage. And instead, we would focus on knowing you, of simply counting ourselves fully loved and, and whole when we accept your gift of salvation. God, I pray that today would be the day that we would be able to begin untangling those knots and that we would freely receive what's been given. Lord, I'm just praying for a freedom to come over every person in this place, that they would know how desperately they are loved. Lord, for those who have kept you at arm's length for this very reason, for feeling like they'll never be good enough, I pray that today they would just allow you to come close and that they would open up their hearts to receive you. In Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen. We love you so much. If you would like prayer this morning, we have people up front who would be honored to pray with you. Otherwise, God bless you. Have a great day.